I need someone who is under the age of 25. I know a lot of our youth are gone in San Francisco this morning. But uh, someone under the age of 25 to tell me what an ATM does. What does an ATM do? Anyone know that? Do I have to bump this to 30? 5, 40? Do I hear 50? What does an ATM do? Rob? It dispenses cash, right? It's the place. Okay, so David, let me zero in on you since I know I can pick on you. It's that thing you pull out your ATM card and you slide it in and you tell it like you want cash, that, that kind of thing. It's, it's everywhere. You see these ATM machines, right? So I'll give you a free pass that you didn't know what that was. That's okay. Um, but let me ask you a second question. Do you know what ATM stands for? Okay. Just bluntly, no. I don't even know what it does, Dave. So how on earth would I know what it stands for? All right, someone over uh, the age of 25, what does ATM stand for? Automatic teller machine, okay? That's right. That's, that's exactly it. Um, I was thinking about this. I was, I was a bank teller for, for about seven years, and it was just when ATMs were coming online, and uh, they're called automatic teller machines. If people hear teller, they don't even, like, people, people these days don't even know what tellers are, really, for the most part, because... Machines have taken our jobs, right? I mean, as, as bank tellers, right? Uh, they, they dispense cash and give it back. As a, as a teller for all those years uh, with Bank of the West, I saw, um, I just saw a ton of really interesting things. Being a bank teller is a little bit like being a bartender, but for money. Um, people come in, and instead of ordering a drink, they look at their money, they talk about their money, they write deposit slips, they withdraw their money, they tell you about their money problems. Um, there were times I just felt like having a stool there and just say, just sidle up here and just hang out here for a while and, you know, let's talk about your money problems. People would talk to me all the time about their money uh, issues. One of the things that you notice about money is it, is it does really strange things to people. And really, money can serve us or we can end up serving money. Isn't that true? And, and it happens really subtly. It's not something that, that you ever set out to do is to serve your money, but it can happen really uh, subtly over time. As a bank teller, people gave me money all day, and words like investing and saving and cashing and storing all were commonplace in my bank. Also in my bank was, was this phrase, taking money. Uh, our bank was robbed some like six or seven times in the seven years I worked there, so it was a very exciting workplace for me to, to, to be there and Again, it makes you do strange things to walk in and brandish a weapon or say you have a weapon and say, I want money. I, I'm willing to risk things because I, I need money, right? Uh, we had very, very wealthy people that walked in and you'd never, ever know in a million years that they're exceedingly wealthy. We had other people who were very, very desperately poor and yet they dressed very gaudy and literally would change outfits multiple times and come to the bank. Uh, it was an odd thing. We had drunk people at the bar next door walk in and try to cash their check and uh, it would actually be a deposit slip that they just filled out right there in the branch, hoping they'd pull a fast one on the bank teller. Just all kinds of fun things. It's, it's a really interesting job. I bring up money because that's really where Jesus goes in, in the text this morning. Turn, turning your Bibles to Luke chapter 19. If you want God separate from your regular everyday life, then don't become a Christian. Don't follow Jesus. He literally gets in your business. Jesus invades every part of your life. He really demands it all, and he gets in your business. We've been in this series called Red Words, and Christians believe that Jesus is, in fact, who he claimed to be, and Jesus claimed to be God. So if Jesus is divine, and he's walking around the earth for some 33 years, and he's speaking words, wouldn't you, 
wouldn't you say that those are the most important words to be paying attention to? I mean, these are divine words. These are, these are God's very words. And so that's why we're devoting ourselves to, to the stories that Jesus told, to the sermons that he preached. Now, he had a lot of interactions and personal things that we aren't getting into in this series. But one of his favorite teaching methods is, uh, is stories, and, and we would be remiss to, to overlook them and not pay close attention to them. Proverbs 13, 13 says this, Whoever despises the word brings destruction on himself. But he who reveres the commandment will be rewarded. Do you see the little formula there? Despise the word and you bring destruction. Revere equals reward. Here's a simple test to know if you are despising or revering the word of God. Ready? What are you doing with it? What are you doing with it? If I give you a warning, if you heed that warning, then you revere that word, right? If you do nothing about that warning, then you despise that warning, right? Even, catch this, even if you memorize my warning, even if you sing about my warning, even if you compliment my warning and how pithy and eloquent it is, even if you read my warning every single morning as part of a daily quiet time, if you don't heed the warning, you actually despise the word. So, so the simple test for all of us, myself included, is what am I doing with what I'm hearing from God? Do I despise it or do I revere it? John 8.51, Jesus says this, truly, truly. Anytime Jesus says truly, truly, he's saying, listen up. This is deep truth here. I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. So not enough to hear it, not enough to sing it, not enough to memorize it, not enough to compliment it. Whoever keeps my word, that's the simple test before us. So let me ask you this this morning. How are you managing? How are you managing? I thought about this question earlier this week, and I thought, that's kind of a penetrating question. I think think you might be sitting there. If I asked you this one-on-one over coffee, you might go, if I just let that out there as an open-ended question, you might go, well, what, you mean in life? You know, in my successes, in my failures, in my health, in my marriage, on the job, with my money? What are you talking about? And it can feel kind of exposing, right? The answer would be yes to all of that. The big idea this morning is that God has entrusted all of that and more to us. And really, the, the open-ended question that I hope you will wrestle with this morning is, how are you managing? How are you managing all that God has put in your hands? We're going to look at a story this morning, and just to provide a tiny bit of context, Jesus has been in Jerusalem. A famous story of him and Zacchaeus has just happened in early in, earlier in Luke 19. And he's making his way from Jericho up to Jerusalem. And just to give you an idea, Jericho to Jerusalem is 17 miles long, and it climbs 3,300 feet. We have a really easy way to put that in perspective. If you stand at the base of Mount Hamilton and you look up to it, that's about 4,000 feet, and that's a 16-mile journey up to the top of Mount Hamilton. So in essence, Jericho, where Jesus has been with Zacchaeus, he's on his way to Jerusalem, 
He's hiking up a mountain with his disciples. In the Old Testament, when you see songs of ascents, ascent means to climb, right, to, 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 to rise. These are songs people would sing on their way to Jerusalem. So next time you see Mount Hamilton up there, you see the Lick Observatory, think of that as Jerusalem. It's, a, it's about the same height above sea level, and songs of ascents where people, as they prepared to worship, they'd be walking up the hill. So here's Jesus walking up the hill from Jer- Jericho to Jerusalem, 17 miles long, 3,300 feet, and he tells this story. And, and the fact that they're going to Jerusalem is really critical um, to this, and I'll explain that uh, in a moment. Actually, I'll tell you right now. Um, we actually see in the text why he says this. Look, look at verse uh, 11, Luke 19, verse 11. It says, as they, those who were with him, heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable. That's a story. Because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So Luke gives us a little commentary as to Jesus' motive for telling this story. And that's going to actually help provide insight as to what is he talking about with the story. He's telling them the story because his disciples and those who were following him were convinced that Jerusalem is near. Jerusalem is the center of their world. It's the center of God's chosen people and all these things that are going to happen. And they're convinced, wow, we're on our way up to Jerusalem right now. We're halfway up the mountain. We're three-quarters of the way up the mountain. I can see Lick Observatory. We're right there. This must be the climax of all that God is doing. We can't wait to take, take it to those Romans. We can't wait to see what God does. I wonder if I'll get a crown. You know, I mean, this is where their head was at. And Jesus essentially is telling this story, and here's what he's saying. Not yet. My kingdom is being established, but it's not going to happen on this trip to Jerusalem. What's going to happen on this trip to Jerusalem? Tell me. He's going to be murdered, right? He's going to die. It's going to be on purpose. It's actually going to be the will of God that he be put to death by sinful men so that he can rise from the grave so that he can go away, so that he can come back to Jerusalem at a future date and establish the kingdom. And the big idea of this story is what to do in the meantime. Guys, it's not happening on this trip. This is not what we're, what we're doing. And you'll catch all of this in the story. Much is at stake. You guys still have a role to play after I go away. And by the way, you will be graded. I want you to keep that phrase in mind this whole story. Isn't it true, students, that when, you, when you're taking notes and someone raises their hand, they ask the question, the whole class is thinking, are we going to be graded on this? Why do you ask that question? Think about it. Why do you ask? That's exactly it. Do I need to really know this or not? Should I be paying attention or not? If it's going to be on the test, what do you do? You pull out the pen, you pull out the keyboard, you start typing and writing and, and paying attention, right? If it's not going to be graded... People put their stuff down, right? They can kind of chillax. They can start daydreaming about things. Jesus is saying, what you do in the meantime is going to be graded. Pay attention to this. Pick up the pencil. Take notes on what's going on here. Now, oftentimes when we tell a story about Jesus, Jesus lived in a very different world than we do. And so to to get into his stories, we have to get into that world a little bit. Um, And I thought, man, of all the stories I've ever tried to communicate to a modern Silicon Valley audience... Um, this is one of the easiest ones. Many times it's about sheep and goats, and I have to go study about that because I don't know about sheep and goats. I was raised right here in San Jose. This is talking about getting some money, working to grow it, and doing business. Something that people in Silicon Valley know a little bit about. 
You've read articles this week. You've probably seen news things. You've probably talked about it with your boss. You've probably dreamt of this, talked about this, reasoned about this. This is stuff that we get here. There's not a lot of background work to all of this. We're going to read the whole story in just a moment, but let me give you kind of the cast to kind of give you the lay of the land so, so that you can kind of see what's going on. There's, there's a nobleman in the story. That's Jesus. The nobleman is, is Jesus. He talks about going off to a distant country. That's heaven. He talks about returning. That's earth. And there's two groups of people. There are ten servants who are clearly in relation to the king. They're servants of his. And there's a second group of people called citizens. And these are called enemies near the end of the story. So you have servants and you have enemies in in the group. And by the way, a mina is a term we don't use much, but it's a sum of money roughly about three months' wages, okay? So that's kind of lay of the land. That would be in your program if you were sitting down to a play. You can kind of see what's going on. Uh, Luke chapter 19, verse um, 12. Remember why he tells them. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens, separate group of people, hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to, call, to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Verse 20. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank, and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. A few observations And a good way to get the meaning out of the text instead of try to put your own meaning into the text is just to read a passage and just write down opening observations that are there. Here's one. Servants are all given the same amount. Uh, There was ten servants. There was ten minas. They were all given one. None of it was earned. Each Each of the recipients simply received what was given. Secondly, you see that servants vary in their effectiveness, right? And it's shown in the kind of return that was given. Third, all will give an account. 
Fourth, reward is in proportion to the return, and that judgment is pronounced on enemies. We see from this that accounts will be settled. Judgment will be based on actions that were done while the master was away. You could sum up the judgment this way. Action and prudent risk was evidently good, right? That was rewarded. Good job. And fearful procrastination and or laziness is bad. And unbelief, not being in relation to the nobleman, is deadly. That's how I could kind of sum up the, 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 the judgment of that. Jesus wakes us to really live. He actually puts us to work, and that's a good thing. You could say it this way, that God has entrusted us with a treasure and enlisted us to his mission. Each person who calls himself a Christian is something like this. They're they're a person wandering around, dead in their sin, fully alive physically, engaged in business, engaged in relationship. But God comes along and he breathes life into them, gives them the spirit of himself. And wakes the person up, essentially. And then to this baby, he gives untold wealth. He hands to a baby untold wealth and treasure. And then he does this. He bids that baby to follow. Here, come follow me. I'm going to give you the treasure. I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom, literally. And I want you to follow me. I've got a job for you. I've got a role for you. Come follow me. That's really the story of every Christian. And some of you in your own life story could think back and go, yeah, that, that is kind of how it went. There are different timings to all of that, but that's how God moves and breathes in us. I don't know if the idea that God has entrusted you with a treasure and listed us to a mission and will grade on this, if that scares you or if that stirs and excites you. But my prayer this morning is that it will cause you to evaluate your life. Socrates said this, an unexamined life is not worth living. Pretty severe to say it's not worth living even. One of the things that stories do is they kind of draw us in and get past our defenses a little bit. Because it's not, it's not like saying, Rico, I'm going to evaluate your life right now. And you get defensive and go, well, let me put all the defenses up. You, you, you hear a story and then you go, huh, I wonder how I would fare if the king came back right now. I wonder how I'm managing things. Which servant would I be of those ten? So that's what I hope this morning, that God stirs in us some examination of ourselves. As creatures, and I recognize this morning that probably not everyone in this room would agree that they're a created being. But the Bible teaches, and I believe wholeheartedly, that we're creatures created by God. And as such, we are all completely dependent on him, and totally accountable to him in all things. As created beings, we are accountable and dependent completely in all things on our creator. When you and I get off track and mix this up, we get into some trouble. If we mix up who God is and who we are, we get kind of mixed up. Jot down 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians 4, 1-2 says this. This is how one should regard us, says Paul, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. 
Paul's saying, you want to know what to call me? As a Christian, I'm a servant and I'm a steward. That's it. And then he says this. Moreover, it is required of, stu- of, of stewards that they be found faithful. Think about a bank teller for a moment. Let's go back to, to bank tellers. If I'm confused as to who I am as a bank teller and what my role is as a bank teller, don't you see that I wouldn't have lasted very long at the bank? People are handing me money all day long. And if I start in my brain going, wow, I'm really good at this. My charm is like getting people to give me their money. I'm so witty that I can trick people out of their money. They're giving it to me. And I'm shoving it in my pockets and I'm spending it, right? Now, as a bank teller, every shift, you give an account for your money. One time I was off $1,000. That's not good for a bank teller. That was probably at year two. I knew the job, and I was actually training other people by that point. You know that I left the bank that day completely at ease? Because you know who knew the truth? Me. I knew I didn't have $1,000 in my pocket. I was pretty convinced they were going to figure out where it was. The only thing that could have happened is if someone stole from my till, which is impossible because I was there the whole time. It was easy. It checked out. It was a missing zero or decimal point or something, and I got a call later on, hey, you stubbed your job. I said, cool. I honestly wasn't that worried about it because I knew the truth. I didn't steal $1,000 from the bank. Do you see, though, that if, if you get off track in life, it's the same way? If you get off track in life and you're receiving these things, you begin to think it's due to your own wit. You start looking at other people who are doing business and going, you poor saps. I'm so much better at this than you. And your health and your relationships, the roads that we travel on, the house that you live in, the clothes that you wear, the food that's available to you. We can begin to think that we're not stewards of these mercies, but rather generators of it and owners of it, and it really gets us into hot water. Here's an axiom that I think many in this valley would agree to. Success in life is how you handle and build wealth. I think if you say that in any public setting, I think people would go, success in life is how you handle and build wealth. Yeah, I, I think that's, that's true. Not all of truth, but that's a, that's a true statement. I think it's widely accepted... But when you define wealth, I think you would divide into two general teams. If you start talking about what you're talking about with the, with the word wealth, you would divide into two groups. Here's one team. It's the kingdom of earth team. The kingdom of earth team rule themselves. They're their own boss. They hate it when other people tell them what to do. They are not accountable to anyone now or ever. They are building their kingdom here on earth. The Kingdom of Heaven team believe that what they have has been gifted by a nobleman who has left to receive his kingdom and is, in fact, coming back. They take inventory often of this wealth and what it is producing, and they are careful not to squander it, and they are ever mindful that one day, perhaps soon, they'll give an account for how they've managed all this wealth that they've been given. When you define wealth, you begin to look at what success looks like, right? And if you're on a trajectory of this life, it's going to have one certain kind of trajectory. If you're on a different path, it's going to have a totally different destination and a totally different trajectory. 
Jot down Proverbs chapter 3. Proverbs chapter 3, the first six verses say this. Listen carefully. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so that you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him and He will make your path straight. You know, I thought about that. I think both teams, the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of earth team, could find comfort and quote that passage of scripture. And if you're screwed up on what success is, if you're screwed up on what wealth is and how you've attained it, you could find a lot of peace and comfort in this thing and get it all completely wrong. If you really understand yourself as a servant, as a steward, then you read this and you take literally, you say, God, I know you've kind of elevated me to this position of rule, and my decisions affect a lot of different people, even just in my own household. What I have has been given from you. I'm, I'm, I'm so dependent on you. I'm listening to a guy named Jerry Bridges, who at the time of the book I'm listening to, he was 85 years old. He's been a mentor to me, although I've never met him. He's just a mentor through books. And he says this, he says, you know, in my aging years, simple house projects became extremely difficult for me. Things I used to do on my own all the time. He said, in my aging years, I pray and I'm dependent on God for the smallest, simplest thing. And he said, I think this is part of maturing, growing up in Christ. He said, I was always this dependent. Even when I was younger, I just didn't realize it as much. And that really hit me. I thought, wow, that's so true. In our arrogance... In managing the here and now, we, we can lose sight of the fact that God, we need to lean on you for, for our understanding so you can make our path straight. You're the one who got us here in the first place. Let me get really practical for a moment. What is it I'm to invest? Each one in this story has been given the same thing. There's a different parable in Matthew that talks about the talents being given And there's a different amount given. There's a little bit of a different nuanced point being made in that parable. It's a different story in a different setting. But in this one, each of the servants is given the exact same thing. Most commentators, and I tend to agree with them, would would, would say that this three months wages, this mina, is kind of representative of your life potential. I've been thinking a lot this week, like just taking inventory. What does every Christian possess? What is it that we're all given that's exactly the same amount? And, and I'm going to just put a few of these out to kind of stir our thinking. The first is, is our self. Psalm 139 and Ephesians 2.10 agree on this point, that you were designed on purpose, that your life matters, that no matter what your story is, you are not a product of fate or chance or coincidence, that God thought of you designed you, made you, and that's why you're here. A friend told me this morning of an, of an accident that happened this week that could have taken him out, could have killed him. And you know what the reality is? 
He's here this morning because God wants him to have lung in his breath this morning, and he's still got a reason and a purpose for him being here. That's true of all of us, whether you had a near-death experience or not. Consider this, that God prescribed your personality. Are you quirky or plain or rambunctious or utterly silent? You know that God designed that? God made you that way for a purpose. He custom made you. How about your body? You know, it's really popular in our culture to, to puff up or really diminish and, and scream about negative things about our body. Do you know that God made your body how it is? Now, we're to care for it. I just had a physical this week for some of our adoption paperwork. And we're, we're to care for it, right? And, and, and there are things that, that we can control and should be in partnership with God. But fundamentally, there are some things you cannot control. God made you that way. Stop belittling what God created. Receive it. Start looking and say, God, why did you make me this way? You say, man, even in this weird shape that I'm in, yeah. Even in this poor health that I'm in, God's in control of every cell of your body. Consider that. Even in this unbelievable health and athletic skill that I possess, yes, God made you that way. Consider that. That's not you. How about your talents? Develop and use what he's given rather than wasting your energy on who you're not, which is a favorite pastime of some. While there may be illegitimate parents, there are no illegitimate children. None. God made you on purpose. Summing up the self is this, that your life has profound meaning. Let me move on to something else, gifts. Do you know that as a Christian, we're all given a spiritual gift? We've covered that a lot of times here here at church. That every Christian possesses spiritual gifts. That's because God's gifted you and he's purposed you for, for something. Now, how do you know what those are? Obviously, they're different. The Bible uses the picture of a body. Some of you are vital organs that we don't even see a lot of, but you're, you're vital, you're internal, and without, without what you do, things wouldn't click. Others of you feel small and insignificant, but if you've ever banged your pinky, you realize this nail is really important. Some of you never see your eyes, because you, you, you only see your eyes if you look in the mirror, but you get something in your eye, what do you think about? Your eyes, a lot, and how important they are. So the gifts differ according to the body. How do you discover what you're gifted at? It's kind of funny because in our era and in our kind of place that we live in, there's all kinds of spiritual assessments tests and gifts tests and all of that. And all you engineers out there love that, right? Quantify it. Get some data behind it. I need this binary. What am I? So you do all the tests and you run the algorithm and you spit out, I'm a golden retriever or whatever. And, and you have these different things. But you know what? That's all analytical and that's all, that's all good for what it is, but it's a little bit mechanical for my taste. If you want to know what your spiritual gift is, let me encourage you. I don't care if you're a new Christian or an old Christian who's forgotten that you're gifted. Here's how you fan into flame the gifts. Pray. Say your prayers, friends. And then be on the lookout. Just be on the lookout. Start praying and saying, God, I'm yours. I'll do whatever you want. And then just be on the lookout and start, start taking those tiny little steps of yes, wherever it is that God's opening the, the, the doors for you. Experiment a little bit. 
Do you know that it was only after I started doing junior high ministry was it that I realized that I'm gifted working with, 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 with teens? I didn't know that until I went and volunteered to do that. I didn't wait for a giant parting of the clouds. I just said, yeah, I guess I'll help out. I felt nervous and awkward as a junior higher would on my first day walking into junior high ministry. And it was only after I started to walk in that. And then here's, here's another thing you can do. Really listen for feedback. It takes being in genuine relationship with one another to hear, hey, brother, you know what? We love you, but would you please leave my ministry? You're just not good at this. I can tell you're frustrated, and frankly, you're frustrating me. Oh, thank you. I needed that. I thought I was supposed to be like in duty mode and just serve God. And let's find out where you're gifted. It's clearly not here, but God's made you for something. Let's figure that out. Or just hearing, man, i got to tell you, when you do this, God just moves in that. Keep doing it, sister. Keep doing that. Whatever you're doing, God's, God's in that. Keep working at that. It takes a lot of humility. It takes a lot of genuine relationship. It takes you listening and actually inviting feedback to grow in that. And pretty soon you begin, you begin to, get, to discover your shape a little bit of how God made you and how God wired you. 1 Peter 4.10 says this, Each one... Not a select few, not the paid pastoral staff, not lifetime missionaries, not those who feel exceptionally passionate toward God. Each one Christian should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. Your strength, your health, your time, your money, all of it is just received. That's it. You didn't generate any of that. It's just pure gift. Any power that you possess is meant for service, not for status. That's where we go wrong with this. We live in a valley that attains power, what? For status, right? What if all the power that God's pouring out is meant for service instead, and we're getting it completely wrong? We are. Here's the third one, and one I want to focus on this morning. I'll close with this. Actually, I'm not going to close quite yet. Um, Is the gospel. 1 Corinthians 4.1 says that we're entrusted with the mysteries of God. That when God wakens us to life, gifts us with new life, He hands us untold wealth. He gives us the mysteries of God. We all have a Bible in our hands, readily available at our phones, are hundreds of translations in almost any language you can think of. There are Christians right now who are in prison. They have no torn out even single page of scripture. But they have the implanted word of God in their heart. Some of them in preparation, knowing that times were going to get tough, began to memorize scripture so that they could have God's word and ruminate on it, think about it, meditate it, let it guide their life continually, even if it's not readily available. Every Christian has the word of God. Every Christian has the Holy Spirit. Every Christian has been entrusted with the gospel. 1 Timothy 1.11 says this, In accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. 2 Corinthians 4.7 says, But this treasure we have in jars of clay. And this is to show that the surpassing power is from God and not from us. God puts his untold treasure in the most unlikely of places and, and, and people. Hold up your hands like this for a moment. This is how many servants are in the story. Now, how many of the servants do we actually hear about? Right here. Three. Okay? 
Put seven back up for a moment. That leaves seven, right? Simple math. I'm not like men. This is, this is high enough for me. You know what this seven represents? Represents the vast majority of people who are ministering and serving God that don't have explosive growth. You can put your hands down. Thank you. That don't have the explosive return that the two get mentioned for, and yet they aren't the ones hiding their, their mina in the handkerchief. This is, this is the vast majority of people who are serving. You know, what's, you know what's really exciting about that? There's all kinds of room to serve God in a meek and humble way that maybe has meager growth. We're doing the best with what we can. We're, 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 we're doing business. We're doing the king's business. We don't get called out and, and headlined. The vast majority of, of people doing phenomenal things never make headlines on earth, but, but I would have a sense that they're making headlines in heaven. The vast majority of people who are doing incredible things are only known to their small little community of people. The vast majority of churches in this valley are not making headlines in San Jose Mercury, on CNN, on Fox, on on any kind of news outlet. Unless what? Unless there's massive, expansive, something magical going on, right, that the world takes notice of. Or unless there's massive failure, moral failure, right? Those are the two things that people love to read about and make headlines. The vast majority of us in this room will probably fall in this seven camp. What is the job of a steward to be found faithful? Now, what I don't want to do with that statement is let you coast. I don't want that to be a freedom to say, oh, cool, I'll just kind of have my little meager return. I'll take that kind of lowest advice that he said, well, at least you should have put it in bank. You could have earned a tiny little percentage. I would say no, dream. Have holy ambition. Lift your eyes bigger than what you could possibly do. Do you know that every single week pastors gather in this church? And you know what? We don't pray for this local little neighborhood, although we're focused on that. We lift our eyes and we say, God, would you do a giant work in the greater South Bay area? Would you take this place of influence that's shaping culture around the world and literally places around the world are taking cues from us in all kinds of ways? Would you do a thing that's so mysterious and so profound and so giant that no one leader, no one church could possibly take credit. All we could do is say, God put us here. God's doing this. Would you do that? We cry out every single week, God, move in a massive way and help us to be ready for the increase. Help us to get on board with with how and what and when you're going to do that. I would invite you, church friends, do the same thing. Dream big. Have a holy ambition for what God could do. All right, now I'm going to close with looking at how. That's what we're to invest. The how is important too. And in fact, the story that we just read reveals motive behind the action. So how am I to invest? The key difference between a godly person and a moral person is their motive. You can find moral people and godly people doing a lot of the same activity, but one is devoted to God and therefore pursues good things. The other one is devoted to self and finds that this is a way that they're self-fulfilling. They end up in a self-righteous place, meaning a righteousness that they've gotten themselves. And you know what that is? That's a castle uh, made of sand. That's all that is. The tide will come in, as judgment does, and it will wash away these silly little things that we do. Even if we've devoted our life to a spectacular sandcastle, we're no match against the tide. Back to the story for a moment. Why did the one servant 
tuck his amount into a handkerchief. That was kind of a common way. It's kind of the, you know, the, the old version of putting it under the mattress. That's kind of what that person was doing. Why did they do it? It's really, really clearly found in Scripture. Look at verse 20 and 21. This servant did it because he misunderstood who God was. He didn't understand the nobleman who became king, right? This is a tactic, by the way, of Satan from the very beginning. In the garden, it was this. Did God really say? There was a sense of, you know that God's holding out on you, right? God's this one that wants to contain all the power. And if you just do this, you can become just like him. It's implanting the idea of messing with who you are and who God is. It's a tactic of the enemy that's really, really rampant today. Servants 1 and 2 get mentioned and rewarded for their ingenuity, for their entrepreneurial spirit. The fact that they executed, the fact that they completed, they they brought in a good return. The third gets reprimanded because he was on the sidelines. He was stingy. Ever wonder why the two feel that they can strike out and do business with confidence? I mean, they must have had a relationship with the nobleman that said, you know what, we're going to strike out and do this. And even if we fail, we know the nobleman that he's going to reward the effort. We've got to get about this. This is important work. If I were to pick adjectives, and this is all me just putting it on it now, but if I could pick adjectives to say, what is the one servant who buried his in the handkerchief? What would, it, what would you describe his relationship to the nobleman? Here are some words that would, that would kind of come to mind for that. Um, duty, fear, mistrust. It was a mechanical relationship, wasn't it? There wasn't a lot of love, to be sure. Knowing that we're loved and confident in all that we have and are in Jesus allows us to go big. It allows us to dream big, take giant steps of faith. Let me take you to Jesus at the beach with Peter for a moment. This is post-resurrection. And he drives a, a truth really deep into his soul, and here it is. Love first leads to action second. And here's how it plays out. He comes to Peter, and you remember this scene. He says, Peter, do you love me? And what does Peter respond? Yeah. Yeah, I love you. And then Jesus gives him his assignment. Feed my sheep. He's calling Peter to pastor. Peter's been gifted to shepherd and pastor people. And he makes this pretty giant dent in the universe, wouldn't you say? I mean, we're reading his words all the time. We look at his life all the time. But Jesus asks a question three times. Do you love me? And by the third time, Peter's hurt that that he's being asked, right? He's confused by it. That question that Jesus asks three times, that's what's really important to Jesus. He doesn't want Peter to get on with the work and not reestablish this relationship. He wants Peter to profess his love for him. He wants Peter to review and remember that not only does he love Jesus, but Jesus loves him. He wants to reinstate Peter, perhaps for the three times he denied him. He reinstates him by asking him three times, do you love me? And what he's saying is this, I died for that sin. It's over, it's gone, it's, it's, it's far away. Don't you dare get on with feeding sheep without establishing this love. 
And we know from the church at Ephesus found in the book of Romans that you can lose your first love. You can wander away from it and get busy doing all the business of the king in a way that the king wouldn't want you doing the business because you're just walking as a moral person now. He wants to ever bring us back, call us back to our love relationship. Do you love me? That's the question Jesus is asking you. Not what can you give for me? What does Jesus need from us? He doesn't need anything from us. He invites us in to partner with him. Let me invite the band to come on up. These are the closing lines to a poem called Invictus. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. There's something about this that I think is really inspiring. It was used at the end of a movie by that same title. And I think as Americans in particular, we go, yeah! But as you look at that line in the poem, you realize, wow, that's, that's a rebel cry. That's a created being that is shaking a fist at the creator. I'm accountable to no one. Do you know that you're living in a land in a period of history that is ever increasingly unaccountable, or at least so they think? They are living as if no nobleman is coming back. They are accountable to themselves. We're kind of watching our country. It's a really interesting season of time, is it not? We're watching our country not even be accountable to, to local authorities, right? Much less federal ones. And it's interesting to watch it play out. The Christian is going to live in an ever-creasingly in-conflict kind of way with the team of the kingdom of this world. How are you concerned, or how concerned are you with the return of Jesus? How involved are you with the king's business? And very specifically, we're going to look at this in our community groups this week, very specifically, what gains have been made for the kingdom? Wouldn't it be great if we got around in small groups and we just spoke into one another's lives and said, man, how can we do this even better? How can we be more urgent about this? God, it's all you. You have to cause the increase. But we do this all the time in the business world because we're accountable to shareholders that want us to make money, right? How much more going to the highest authority and thinking this through? The story that Jesus tells is a warning to those who believe, who, who don't believe that death awaits. And it's also an encouragement Press on. Get after it, servants. The nobleman's coming back. He's, he's coming back as king. 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says this, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable. Catch this. Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. If you're tired this morning, friends, you are part of a massive story. Keep at it. If you're sidelined, stingy right now, Get in the game. If you don't know what that looks like, talk to me. Get to someone who you know will be like a personal trainer that will kick you in the teeth once in a while and say, brother, sister, wake up. This life is not about jumping in and going to church and being kind of a sort of good person once in a while. Here's an action item. This summer, we're going to invite you to come ponder with us. Summer theologians is our affectionate title for some summer classes that, that go for about six weeks. And the last thing I would want to do is end this sermon by saying, hey, come to a class for six weeks. And, and that'll kind of be the end of it. Because in a way, 
we might be just despising the commandment all the more. Hey, let's go learn more stuff we have no intention of actually doing. My invite would be this. Come to one of these six-week classes so that you can grow in your management. God, I know you've given me a lot to do. I don't know what to do with it. No one's ever walked me through this. Or I used to a long time ago. I I need to be wakened up to this. The four tracks are going to be... My wife and I are going to do one called Considering Adoption. These are for people who even have the slightest inkling that this might be something they want to do. Uh, And these are open, by the way, to to more than just people from NBC. We're going to look at at how to go about that. Kel's going to lead one on the book of Hebrews and just walking through the entire book in six weeks. That in itself is a huge challenge. Rich Henderson and others are going to lead something called Redemptive Compassion. You ever share with someone and serve someone and wonder if you're doing it in a way that's enabling them to live a lifestyle that's, that's ever increasingly going to cause them to be in need? This class really looks at that and, and dives into that. And lastly, we've got a couple in our church who are just really passionate about providing a place for kind of upper elementary and, and middle school age to come and, and pose their questions and just be able to say, hey, um, tell me how... Theology applies to my life and and those sorts of things. So um, those begin in about a month. Love to have you uh, carve out time and join us. They'll be on on Wednesday nights. Let me pray. God, thanks for this morning. Thank you so much for your word. I pray, God, right now, even as we respond in song, that that our words wouldn't be rote, that we wouldn't just um, kind of sing them and and, uh, not pay attention to, to what we're singing, God, but that we'd honor you with our hearts as well. Amen.